0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org. Matthew chapter 21. Continue our study through Matthew. We've come to the 21st chapter, and we're looking at verses 12 through 17. Matthew 21. And we read beginning with verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Let's go to our God together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we gather here today as your people in obedience to what you have set forth in your word. You command this of your people. We gather in obedience, but Lord, we gather in joyful obedience. What You have commanded, You have now worked in our hearts in such a way that it is our desire. And so we gather obediently and joyfully to give You worship and to receive from Your hand. I know, Lord, represented in this room are all sorts of varying situations, things that have gone on in our lives this past week, things that are going on in our lives even today. We come into this place with all sorts of different life circumstances, but it is right that in this time of worship, we look away from ourselves to You. For Lord, You are always worthy of our worship, and You are sovereign over every aspect of our lives. So that the answer in times of, joy or times of grief, times of peace or times of unrest, times of joy or sorrow, health or sickness, whatever our circumstances are, Lord, the answer is always You. We look to You. And so as we do, would You meet with us in a way that is manifest to us, in a way that we recognize so that we leave today refreshed, encouraged, fortified and where needed, Lord, corrected, that our feet would be set in a fresh way on a on the right path. And we ask for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The sinfulness of man, the fallen condition of man is on display literally in every realm of life. If you ask, where do we see man's sinfulness? I'm talking now about Man in his lost condition, I'm talking about mankind as he is born into this world since the fall of Adam, if you ask where do you see man's sinfulness on display, the answer is in every aspect of his being and in every realm of his life. Sin breaks out everywhere. But the most egregious example of man's sinfulness is found in the realm of worship. God created us in such a way that we are worshipers by nature. We are wired to worship. Everyone on this planet is a worshiper. We're all worshiping something. Of course, the only true worshipers are those who have been rescued, delivered, saved, reconciled to God. But every human being is giving worship somewhere. And so when you look at man in his lost condition, what you find is a worshiper, but his worship is perverted. His worship is distorted. The way that he thinks about worship is perverted, and the way that he attempts to worship is perverted. Perhaps the most telling sign of all when it comes to his sinfulness is when man worships in his lost condition, he always puts himself at the center. It's not really about God. It's about Him. And so men conceive of worship in ways that are self-styled. I will give to God what accords with my own appetite. This is startling, isn't it? Because you see this on display even in the professing church. You see this on display in professing evangelicalism. Where Here's what we're going to do. We're going to design the church in a way where it's attractive to sinners. What what do you want us to be? What do you want worship to be? What would most accord with your tastes and your appetites and your preferences? Now let us aim at that in the name of worshiping God. Can you see the wrongness of that? Can you see the sinfulness of man on display in those concepts of worship? In the name of worshiping God, we will give to God what really accords with our appetites. Our preferences. What is absent is the fear, the holy fear that recognizes God's honor, His holiness. What is absent is the inquiry. What has God demanded? Right? We're not asking the right questions. What has God demanded in the realm of worship? What is absent is a willingness to be submissive. To what God has expressly revealed concerning worship. All of this, this self-styled, self-centered approach to worship says, we don't know the one whom we are seeking to worship. Because the first thing you would know if you know the true and living God is, He doesn't just accept whatever it is you're willing to offer. He only accepts what is acceptable to Him. He only accepts from mankind what he has given to mankind that it then in turn might be given back to God in the form of worship. And the Bible addresses this problem, this problem of man's false worship, over and over again in the scriptures. Unregenerate men trying to worship God, offering polluted forms of worship. That being met with God's rejection of those polluted forms of worship and God's rebuke of the worshipers. Just a couple of biblical examples. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, "...a son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O oh, priests who despise my name." But you say... How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals in sacrifice. Is that not evil? You're not bringing to me what I have demanded. You're bringing to me what you're willing to give to me. You're not bringing your best. You're not bringing that which is unblemished. You're bringing... The blind and the lame, goes on to say, and when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us? With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you, listen to this, who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. Just shut it down. Just close the doors. I don't need your worship, and I will not accept whatever it is you have determined to give me. Isaiah chapter 1 is another example of this. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, For the Lord has spoken, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Do you hear in both of these passages, Malachi and Isaiah, what is really on display is blindness. You don't know, you don't understand, you don't see, you see. This is what is on display as man offers his perverted, distorted Forms of worship toward the living God. Verse 4, Ah, sinful nation of people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head. There's no soundness in it. But bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, it is overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What do I want from you? I want your obedience. I want your heart. I want your life. The problem is not just your polluted offerings. The problem is the polluted offerer. You are polluted. What you need is forgiveness. What you need is salvation. What you need is transformation. Transformation. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your convocations. I don't need your festivals and your feasts. I don't need that. I've given those things to you that you might know who I am and worship me as I am. Verse 18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing... And obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Even in the midst of rebuking them, he offers redemption to them, he offers forgiveness to them, he offers mercy to them. Where is man's sin on display? In every realm of his life, in every realm of his person, but most seriously, it is on display in the way that he seeks to worship God in the ignorance of his lostness. Well, in Matthew 21, 12-17, through 17, what are we seeing? We meet with God in human flesh. We meet with the Lord of the temple. We meet with the Son of God, cleansing the temple in Jerusalem for the second time. He cleansed the temple at the beginning of His ministry. John chapter 2 records this. And now here He is, in the final week of His life, making His way to the cross where He will be our substitute, where He will die in our stead, that we might be reconciled to God, that we who are polluted from birth might be forgiven and cleansed, that we might be made true worshipers. He's on His way to the cross. But as He's on His way there, He must expose and confront the distortion of worship going on in the name of the living God. Listen to what Jesus did at the very beginning of his ministry, John chapter 2. You can turn there if you want to and look at verse 11, because I'm going to read down to verse 22. John chapter 2, verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. Do not make My Father's house a house of trade. His disciples remember that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume Me. So the Jews said to Him, What sign do You show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There He is, right after His first miracle, the turning of water into wine in Cana of Galilee, makes His way into the temple, cleanses the temple, drives out the merchants with a a whip. At the very beginning of His ministry, He's saying, and this is the message, Israel, you are are massively unbelieving you are massively apostate. that is, most of the people are not genuine believers, and your religion has been corrupted. I mean he goes to the very focal point of Israel's religion, the temple, and he says, "This is distortion, this is perversion, this is not true religion, this is not really worshiping God." And at the same time, he is demonstrating his authority the majesty of His person and the authority that belongs to Him. What was meant to put God's glory on display in terms of the Old Covenant instructions for worship and all the means that God had given for worship, what was meant to display His glory and meant to make Israel a glory to the nations, testifying to the true God and His saving mercy, all of that had been perverted. And if you ask, why would Jesus confront this? There are two answers. One, of course, is in defense of the name of God, just in defense of the glory of God Himself. But the second reason is, even as we saw in Isaiah chapter 1, it is to save. It is to save. It is to say you are on the wrong road. This is not the truth. But the way of cleansing is open to you. Let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as wool. You can be forgiven fully of your sins. But you can't turn to the true God until you turn away from your polluted forms of worship. You can't look to the true Redeemer until you know who He really is. And so Jesus is manifesting His own identity and His own authority, defending the honor of God's name and offering at the same time a merciful message You need salvation. This is apostasy. This is perversion. This is distortion. This is not true religion. We'll think about this this morning under two main headings. The first one is this, a display of holy jealousy. A display of holy jealousy. Look again at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Now we read it a moment ago in John chapter 2, when Jesus cleansed the temple the first time, John describes it in the terms of zeal. Zeal. John 2.17, His disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus enters the temple with zeal. What is that zeal? It is holy jealousy. The right kind of jealousy. It is a kind of anger. That reflects loyalty. It is a fervor. It is a passion. It is a devotion to the honor of God, to the holiness of His name. God in human flesh is incensed as He confronts what is a distortion in the name of that holy God. In Psalm 69, David is suffering on behalf of his identification with Yahweh, his faithfulness to God. Isaiah 69 verse 7 says, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. It is for your sake, David says, that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Then he writes this, For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Now that speaks of David's own experience, but John rightly picks up on the fact that here we have in the temple David's divine son, as it were, the divine son of David. And he is suffering and and will suffer at the hands of those who hate him because of his jealousy for the holy respect that God is due. Just as David was suffering for his fidelity to God, so the greater David, the divine son of David, the son of God, the Messiah, will suffer due to his loyalty to the name of God. Make no mistake about it, what Jesus does in the temple will contribute, as we'll see in a moment, to the kind of hatred that says we've got to eliminate him. So just as David suffers for his fidelity to Yahweh, so the Messiah will suffer due to his zeal for the name of God and the house of God. Side note, genuine godliness is known not just by what it loves, but by what it hates. You cannot walk in genuine godliness and be indifferent When you see God dishonored, the same sort of zeal we see in our Savior is something we're taught through salvation. And we've got to be careful that what we call holy anger is truly holy. We all know that. But there's something wrong with a people who are not vexed and grieved by what dishonors the Lord. Jesus knows a holy hatred for the profane things taking place in the temple. So what's going on in the temple that in Causes him to be incensed. What is God not pleased with in this temple scene? Well, what's going on is business. They've taken the house of God and they've turned it a house of prayer, a place of worship. A place that should have been characterized not just by the offerings that were demanded by the Old Covenant, but by a sort of holy quietness and contemplation that belongs to true worship. And instead it is turned into a stockyard where animals are brought in and guys are sitting around on their seats selling pigeons and along with all the noise and all the disruption and the exchanges taking place, there would have been the stench of these animals. All of it brought right into the temple precincts. Buying, selling, money changing. Now those activities by themselves would not have necessarily been inappropriate. That is, people needed animals for their sacrifices, people needed pigeons for their offerings, temple tax was paid in temple currency, the temple tax was a half shekel, so money exchange from a Roman currency to the temple currency, that would have been acceptable, nothing wrong with that, but what's wrong here is they've taken what could have been done honestly outside the temple and they brought it right into the temple complex. R.T. France comments, It seems then that it's not any specific malpractice that Jesus rejects, but the whole system of sacrificial worship which had developed into big business, and particularly the temple authorities who had allowed its commercial aspect to become enshrined within the temple precincts. See, this can't happen unless the temple authorities are allowing it. One day you may read about Annas's Bazaar. Not only were they allowing it, they were in all likelihood profiting from it. France goes on to say in so doing, Jesus not only clearly sets himself above the existing religious authorities of his nation, but also claims the right, which surely can only be messianic, to declare that the whole system of sacrificial worship for all its scriptural origin has developed into something which is no longer acceptable to God. So he's right. These activities by themselves were not necessarily sinful, but now you've brought them into the temple. And in addition, we have abundant historical evidence that even that was dishonest. I mean, even what they were could have done honestly outside the temple, they were doing in a way that was dishonest. Exorbitant prices for these animals were being charged. In some cases, what was likely going on, priests rejecting animals people had brought of their own, saying they didn't measure up to the standard, and directing them to the marketplace where they had to make these purchases. It was just one corrupt situation. By the way, where would this business have been occurring within the temple precincts? Answer, the court of the Gentiles, the outermost part of the temple precincts where Gentile believers were allowed to gather for worship. Is it coincidental that when Jesus speaks to this in verse 13, He said to them, it's written... As he's driving them out, do you want an explanation for what you're witnessing? Well, let the Word of God speak to it. Verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you're making it a robber's den. He's referencing Isaiah 56 and he's referencing Jeremiah chapter 7. Is it coincidental that both of those passages have to do with Gentile worship and Gentile treatment? And this is taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Here's another side note. False worship always involves not just blindness toward God, but blindness toward people. Where you have false religion, you not only have a disregard for God, you have a disregard for fellow image bearers. The two great commandments are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. You see, true religion, salvation, affects not just your view of God, but your view of people. So where you have an apostate Israel, not only on display is her disregard for her God, but now her disregard for fellow image bearers in the form of Gentiles, meant to be a witness to the nations. Instead, there's a hatred for the nations. Listen to the context of what Jesus quotes from Isaiah 56. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Well, listen to the context. Isaiah 56 verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to Yahweh say, Yahweh will surely separate me from his people. Who's a foreigner? A Gentile. Us. Most of us. Nor let the eunuchs say, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says Yahweh to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me and hold fast my covenant to them, I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Also, the foreigners who join themselves to Yahweh to minister to Him and to love the name of Yahweh, to be His slaves, everyone who keeps from profaning the Sabbath and takes hold of My covenant, even those I will bring to My holy mountain and make them glad in My house of prayer. Yes, under the old covenant, there's a distinction between Israel and the nations, but He's saying even to the foreigner who recognizes the truth of the true the one and only true and living God, if you come to Him in genuine faith to bow your heart before Him, to obey Him in all His ways, to join yourself to the covenant, you'll be accepted. He says, I'll make them glad in My house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on My altar, for My house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. That's what Jesus is quoting from. And you have taken this court for the Gentiles and turned it into a stable. This is where it's been supplied for you to approach God with love and worship and we're communicating by turning it into a marketplace. There's no place for you so that the distortion the perversion of worship is seen not just in attitude toward God but attitude toward people. And Jesus goes on to say, In verse 13, you're making it a robber's den. Where would that come from? Jeremiah chapter 7. Listen to the larger context. Jeremiah 7 verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, saying, Stand in the gate of the house of Yahweh, and you shall call out there this word, and you shall say, Hear the word of Yahweh, all you of Judah, who enter by these gates to worship Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, make your ways and your deeds good, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in lying words saying, this is the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. Let me just pause there. Do you know what's going on? They feel like they are safe because of the presence of the temple. How how could we ever be overrun? How could we ever be taken captive how could we ever be deported the temple is here the temple of the lord the temple of the lord the temple of the lord they're being warned fifth verse for if you truly make your ways and your deeds good if you truly do justice between a man and his neighbor listen to verse 6 if you do not oppress the sojourner who's that it's a foreigner someone who who's not a native but they've taken their place among you. If you do not oppress the sojourner, the orphan, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own evil demise, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in lying words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear while lying? And burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods that you've not known. Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We're delivered that you may do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a robber's den in your sight? I mean, is this where thieves gather? Is this where the bandits get together? Is that how you see my house? Is that how you see worshiping me? This is where all the thieves get together. In a context where he says, if you'll do what's right, and that includes how you treat the sojourner, then I'll receive you. And so in the court of the Gentiles, this abomination is taking place, which reflects their sin toward God and their blindness toward fellow image bearers. And Jesus, who is God on the earth, God in human flesh, reflects this holy jealousy for the name of His Father and drives it all out. Speaks of the majesty of His person, the authority of His person, but also speaks at the same time of a holy jealousy for the name of God. William Hendrickson comments, he contrasts the divine ideal for worship as described in Isaiah 56, 7 with the present situation, a condition that reminded him of Jeremiah 7, 11, which he quotes, In the days of Jeremiah 2, as is proved by that prophet's famous temple discourse, the Jews were oppressing aliens, stealing, murdering, etc. Nevertheless, they continued to offer their sacrifices in the temple as if such Merely formalistic worship of Jehovah would do any good, as if the very presence of the temple would protect them from the outpouring of God's wrath. It was then that Jeremiah had said, Do not trust in lying words, saying the temple of Jehovah, the temple of Jehovah, the temple of Jehovah is this. Has this house that is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? In the days of Christ's sojourn, history was repeating itself. The temple had again become a cave of thieves, an allusion perhaps to the rocky caves in the hills of Judea where thieves and robbers would often assemble. This is what God is displeased with in the temple. Now notice, still thinking about this holy jealousy, notice what God is pleased with in the temple. Verse 14, And the blind and the lame came to Him in the temple and He healed them. Isn't this encouraging, instructive, that in this same person where we find holy indignation, you find divine compassion? In the same place where he's driving out what is offensive to God, he shows mercy to those who know they're in need of the living God. The miracles continue to serve as signs, not only pointing us to the to the true identity of Jesus, but also at the same time testifying to the graciousness and the mercy of his mission. He has come into the world to open blind eyes. He has come into the world to deliver people from their sins, and the healing of bodies points to the making wholeness and wellness of of people's lives instantaneous, complete physical deliverance for the blind and the lame says this is is God who is the source of what is taking place right before your very eyes. D.A. Carson said it was not uncommon for the chronically ill to beg at the approaches to the temple, but where the lame, blind, deaf, or otherwise disabled could go in the temple area was restricted. The court of the Gentiles was open to them all, And there were even crippled priests. But restrictions were imposed when the disability required certain kinds of cushions, pads, or supports that might introduce uncleanness. So if you're blind or lame, you can go into the court of the Gentiles, but you can't bring your supports or your cushions with you because it might be ceremonially unclean. He goes on to say this, "...most Jewish authorities forbade any person who was lame, blind, deaf or mute from offering a a sacrifice, from appearing before Yahweh in His temple." But Jesus heals them, thus showing that one greater than the temple is here. He Himself cannot be contaminated, and He heals and makes clean those who come into contact with Him. Divine indignation, divine compassion, on display in the same scene, on display on the same ground, on display in the same person. A display of holy jealousy and yet divine mercy. Second point, we also see in these verses a display of unholy jealousy. Verse 15, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became Indignant. They became indignant. Jesus is doing this on Monday, made his way into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Mark tells us that after the triumphal entry, Jesus went to the temple and he looked around, but he left and he retired that evening to Bethany. Mark 11, verse 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So this is the day following the triumphal entry of Jesus. Mark also tells us there was some activity in the morning. Uh, The cursing of the fig tree, all of that takes place. Then he makes his way to the temple. The day before then would have been memorable. And as children are prone to do, they reproduce what they remember. They remember the cries of Hosanna. They remember the celebration of Jesus as king. They had heard this, Mark 11 verse 9, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is going on during the triumphal entry. The children were there. They heard what their parents were saying. Now here the next day, the children present in the temple are voicing the same things. They are echoing what they heard the day before so that the chief priests and the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, are seeing marvelous things. This is how Matthew records it. They saw the marvelous things which He had done. They see the healings. They see the cleansing of the temple, and they are hearing Worshipful things. Hosanna to the Son of David. Seeing wonderful things, hearing worshipful things. What's their response? They are indignant. They're angry. They're jealous. Pilate recognized this that the Jews turned Jesus over to him, to the Romans, because of jealousy. They hate what God loves. What Jesus has done out of love for God, they have no heart for. Do you not hear what they're saying? These children, Jesus, don't you hear what they're saying? What they're saying, of course, is this is blasphemy. Isn't it ironic that they're not troubled by the outer court of the temple being turned into a marketplace? That's not blasphemy. But these children giving voice to the praise of Jesus, that's blasphemy. What they're saying is stop them. Stop them. How does Jesus answer? He answers with Scripture. Verse 16, They became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. I love that. Yes. Yes, I hear what they're saying. And then he says this, Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. You know what Jesus just told them? This is fitting. This is right. This is God's activity. Instead of making you angry, this should silence you. It's not something that Jesus saw it as something that was given him freely. And he wants them to recognize this is the work of God. Look for a moment at Psalm 8. When Jesus says this about the children, where is he quoting from? He's quoting from the 8th Psalm. Look there with me. Psalm 8. Listen to the larger context of this. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who displays Your splendor "...above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty." make Him a rule over the works of Your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen, and also all the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O oh, Yahweh our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. What has God done? He has destined praise and worship for Himself because it's right, it's fitting. And God's name is magnified and glorified from the highest to the lowest by the things that He's put in creation into the heavens and even above the heavens in the mouths of angels. God is praised down to the lowliest place from the crib and the nursery when little children give voice to praise for God. By the way, Psalm 8 doesn't really focus on a messianic affirmation. This is about praise to God so that when Jesus invokes that verse, He's actually pointing to something else about His identity. I'm not just the Messiah, I am divine. It's fitting that I should receive praise. Derek Kidner comments, The God whose glory fills the earth is our Lord. We are in covenant with Him. His praise is chanted on high, yet acceptably echoed from the cradle in the nursery with all earth and heaven proclaiming God in verse 1. Talking about Psalm 8. The rising discord of foes, enemy, avenger, presents a challenge which God meets with what is weak in the world. There you are standing angry with Jesus, the great ones in the nation of Israel. And God answers you with the weakest as the little children recognize who Jesus is and chant out His identity. Kendra goes on to say the immaterial by the mouth and the immature. This is how God answers His enemies. But as Palm Sunday was to show, Matthew 21, 15, the free confession of love and trust is a devastating answer to the accuser and his arsenal of doubts and slanders. Stop the children. Don't you hear what they're saying? Oh yes, I hear what they're saying. Haven't you read Psalm 8? Psalm 8. You're the leaders of Israel. You're the scribes. You're the priestly class. Haven't you read the 8th Psalm? You'll have your answer when you read the 8th Psalm. Contrast what Jesus wants stopped with what they want stopped. And you'll have your answer as to who is true. By the way, sometimes you'll hear someone say something like this, Well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. I want to remind you of something. In the very scene where Jesus is rebuking perversions of worship, He is willing to receive worship. Right? You can't have Jesus the prophet, Jesus the good man, Jesus the way-shower, but not Jesus the Son of God. Because you have Jesus not stopping the children as They declare worship that involves him. So, in the the very moment where he's saying, Stop the perversions of worship, he receives worship. Who is that? That's God in human flesh. And he left them there and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Do you join the children? Do you join them in their praises? Do you worship Jesus? Do you recognize He is the one promised throughout all the Old Testament Scriptures? Do you believe John the Baptist when he points to Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you believe He's the divine Son of David? Do you believe He's Israel's King just as He presented Himself? Your King is coming to you lowly. Riding on the back of a colt. Do you see Him and do you embrace Him as the only deliverer God has ever given or will ever give for you. The only way to be reconciled to your Creator. The only way for the polluted race of man to be cleansed and made a true worshiper reconciled to his Creator, now able to offer true sacrifices of worship in and through this one who has redeemed us from our sins. It is only in and through Christ that you will ever offer anything that's acceptable to God. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you one who worships God in and through His Son? So that you cry out with the children, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Do you join them in their praises? You can't turn to the true God until you're willing to turn from your perversion of worship. We're all born into the world worshipers, but perverted worshipers. And the only way to be saved is you must see that your worship is unacceptable. Your worship is perverted. True worshipers don't begin with themselves or focus on themselves, they look away from themselves. It's not what are your tastes, what are your preferences. What do you want? Worship is not for you. Oh, you benefit from it. You receive from giving your worship to God, but it is not self-styled. What has He commanded? What has He demanded? What has He supplied through His Word that then you're meant to take hold of and offer back to Him in a worship that is fitting for the great King who's made Himself known to us? And the heart of a true worshiper says, I must bring what you have commanded, what you have revealed, and and for any of it to be acceptable, it is in and through Jesus, the Lamb of God whom you sent into the world to take away our sins. The church would say, Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our Savior, for your Son, for our great high priest, for the one who is both the perfectly pure offerer and offering. it came to our redemption. Thank You, Lord, for opening our eyes. Thank You for turning our hearts in such a way that when we think of worshiping You, we think now in terms of what You've revealed. We don't put ourselves at the center, but we put You in Your rightful place. And what we desire is what would please You. And we know, Lord, that we by Your unimaginable mercy and grace and kindness are acceptable to You by the blood of Your Son. In Your Son, You've embraced us. And now You've created in us a knowledge of You through Him. And in that way, Lord, You have informed our minds and our hearts and our desires with a kind of worship that's true. Lord, thank You for this. May we see all of our life as an expression of our love for You And may we, as a result, have a right view of your image bearers. May we see what people really need in the terms of the gospel. And may our desire for the reconciliation of sinners and our acceptance of people when they've been forgiven, may it reflect your grace and mercy and kindness to all of us. We ask you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.